Okay, I'm just warning you right now, no talk about the University of Michigan football game yesterday. No, do not come up to me and talk to me about the problem of evil. We covered that two weeks ago. First trash-talking text I got was from Justina Airy, who is a Michigan State fan, and I promise you right now, this is being filmed, when Michigan beats Ohio State, I'm toilet papering their house. And I'll, I'll do the time. I'll do the time. I don't care. Hey, I want to remind you, uh, 6 o'clock tonight is the discussion about Mormonism. Um, you know, God has strategically placed this church in location with a lot of different Mormon churches. And uh, we have some really good Mormon friends. And uh, we're going to be there tonight, uh, me and my son. And I just encourage you to come 6 o'clock. Craig Hazen, I can't think of anybody more qualified to talk about this issue. It would be in the chapel from 6 to 8. Uh, let me tell you what's going to happen. In a couple weeks, we're going to start another series. Uh, if we ask the Apostle Paul, what were your first things? If, if we read the book of Romans and we said, what would be five of the first things Paul would identify in the book of Romans? Uh, what would be those? And that's what we're going to tackle in our next series because we're wrapping this one up today. Today, we, we're talking about the things that are first things as we seek to follow God. Uh, first, we said that you have to have a right view of God. It's awe and intimacy, but we can't err towards intimacy. Second, we said that forgiveness is what marks the church, is that we do forgive each other. We are unified. Then we talked about the fact of how strong is that door? What are the intellectual reasons for believing uh, that God is real, that Jesus is the manifestation of God, that the resurrection happened? And then we talked about don't fall in love with a hotel. This is a way station. Discontentment is part of this life. God instituted that into the world. So now let me ask this question. If all of that is true, why is the Christian life so hard at times? Why is it that we get a wrong perspective of God? Why is it that it's really hard to forgive people? Why is it that we do fall in love with a hotel? Why is it that we have doubts about the Christian faith, about God's love, whether we can trust God or not? Now there's a ton of answers to that question. But let me give one that is seldom addressed by the church in the West. Uh, let me bring it up this way. Uh, I did some relief work in Africa. Uh, I was part of crew. Uh, we used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ. I'd never seen poverty like that before. We worked in inner city, a place called the Mathari Valley, some of the deepest poverty in the continent of Africa. Uh, and we were told when we got there, hey, the people of Africa are absolutely wonderful, but you've got to watch out for street gangs. Street gangs are everywhere. You're showing the Jesus film. You have a generator. You have a projector. That's very valuable. So, hey, just watch out for street gangs. Well, you know, a couple of weeks went by. A month went by. The people of Africa are incredibly generous people. And we, we sort of knew that these street gangs were out there, but we'd never seen them. And every day we went out, uh, Simon Zero Makenga would say to us, hey, be safe out there. And we were like, oh, okay. So I remember this uh, month and a half into it, Laura was having a really hard time. She was a junior college student. And she said to me, she said, Tim, I think this is the first good day I've had since arriving in Africa. Just as she said that, a young man ran up to her, grabbed her necklace, ripped it off her neck, and took off running down the street. She yelled, my dad gave me that for high school graduation. So I got up, and I'm running after this man, screaming, thief. As we're turning corners, going down alleys, people are taking bricks and trying to hit uh, the thief and almost hitting me. And uh, one guy came out with like a baseball bat, like a, cr um, a cricket bat, and tried to hit his knees. And I'm ducking and I'm running like a madman. And it suddenly occurs to me what Simon Zero Makenga said to us the first day of orientation. Hey, what they want is the projector. 
they're going to cause some kind of distraction. So I literally stopped dead in my tracks, and I said, I just left Laura alone with the projector. And I turn around, and I am sprinting back towards the projector. Now, I turn the corner. She's crying, but the projector's fine. And I just sat down. I'm going to have a coronary. Oh, my goodness. I'm just sitting there, and it occurred to me, we were warned. We were warned, and we didn't necessarily believe it. We certainly didn't take precautions, and I was the leader of that team. Do you know, that's the situation the church in the West is. If I were to say to you, do you believe in Satan, you would say yes. But do we ever act like Satan is real? Do we ever prepare for Satan to cause us to have an imbalanced view of God, to cause us to not to forgive each other, to cause us to doubt God, to call us to fall in love with a world that he deeply influences? Now, a person who has greatly impacted my thinking on this is one of our theologians at Biola. His name is... is, Clint Arnold, he wrote a powerful book about Paul's view of Satan called The Powers of Darkness, and this is what he says. Uh, Ultimately, we cannot ignore this topic. Evil imposes itself upon us and those we love, and if we want want help from the Bible for dealing with the problem of evil, we must be willing to take seriously what the Bible takes seriously, the intense involvement in life of a figure named Satan and his powers of darkness. Now, when I say Satan, what comes to mind is incredibly important. If you think of red hooves, underwear, and a pitchfork, then you have been influenced by two things. One, you have been influenced by the far side, right? Um, So here's Satan with a colleague, and there's a guy whistling while he works, and one guy says to another, you know, we're just not reaching this guy. Another guy with Satan uh, stands there in two doors, damned if you do, damned if you don't, and Satan says, come on, come on, it's either one or the other. That is not Satan. Um, You know where that image of hooves, pitchfork, red underwear came from? It came from the medieval church. But they were mocking Satan. They were making fun of him. They understood that Satan was a power to be dealt with in this world, right? A, a, A massive power. If Satan were in this room right now, our temptation would be to worship him. He would come across as powerful and charismatic, right? So we are an anomaly in the West, right? The rest of the world, in Africa, they believe in the powers of darkness. It's the West and our enlightenment that we just don't take Satan seriously. Listen to what Clint Arnold has to say. Those of us in the West need to place our attitude toward the supernatural into the broader sweep of human history. The last 300 years in the West represent the only time in human history that the existence of evil spirits has been treated with widespread skepticism. So if you do a history of humanity, you're going to see two things present very quickly. One, there is a belief in God. Atheism has to be taught to people. A belief in God is very natural to the human species. Also is natural to humankind is this belief in darkness, this belief in evil as personified in a devil or in Satan. And the West, since we've gotten too smart to believe in things like that, we just make fun of Satan or we make um, horror flicks about him that make him a caricature and Satan is pleased with either way you go. C.S. Lewis said this, there's two mistakes we can make about Satan. One, we can attribute everything to him, right? So you lose your car keys. Satan, where are my car keys? And they fall out of the air. Thank you. And you just walk away. Or, Lewis says, we attribute nothing to him. And I think the West, we're in the danger of attributing nothing to Satan. 
So we need to be wise when it comes to Satan. So here's what I want to say. Let's talk about some general observations about the devil, Satan, and then let's actually take a look at his playbook. Let's see Satan in action, how he does tempt individuals. Oh, by the way, let me just say this. Paul totally understood that Satan was a force to be contended with. In this very brief survey, consider this. While Paul notes that there are many who oppose me, right, 1 Corinthians 16, and even singles out individuals such as Alexander the metal worker, we know nothing about this individual except that he did great harm to Paul, he never loses sight that the real war is against the God of this age. Paul specifically informs his readers that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of the dark world and the spiritual forces of evil that exist today. So yeah, you're having problems in your marriage, and there's a lot of reasons you're having problems. Or you're having problems at church or in your neighborhood. Uh, There's a ton of reasons why you're having problems, but we never once stop to think that maybe Satan is behind this. So at these marriage conferences Noreen and I speak at, we actually have the couples look at each other and, we say, and they say to each other, you are not my enemy, right? You have an enemy of your marriage. You have an enemy. Um, and that is Satan. He's an enemy of this church. But we never once stop to think, maybe Satan is behind some of the things that we're experiencing as a church or individuals. Paul never lost sight of that. So here are some general observations. Uh, number one, it's not about you. So Satan doesn't care about you. He cares about God. He wants to hurt God. He led a rebellion against God. It was unsuccessful. The only reason you matter to Satan is because you matter to God. That is the only reason you matter to Satan. He wants to hurt God, and the way to do that is to affect you, to go after God's children. Now, I thought of, uh, there's a movie that came out when I was in college, my goodness, this dates me, it was The Untouchables, right, when Kevin Costner, remember when he used to act, Kevin Costner? Um, Robert De Niro is Al Capone, and Kevin Costner is Elliot Ness. Well, Elliot Ness is busting into Al Capone's territory, and Capone's getting very frustrated. He can't kill Elliot Ness, right? That caused a lot of problems. You can't kill a federal officer. So he says this in a very famous scene. He says, he said, uh, Elliot Ness's family, I want him dead. His dog, I want him dead. His house, I want it burnt down to the ground. So he wants to hurt Elliot Ness, and he's going to do it with everything that it matters to Elliot Ness. Boy, we, I think we feel that today, right? Uh, if you were to come after me, I'm an adult, I can handle it, but if you go after my kids, you get a reaction out of me very quick. You go after my wife, you get a reaction. Listen, you can criticize me. That's fine. In social media, that's fine. I'm an academic. I publish. I, I have a radio spot. I, I say things that are controversial. I don't expect everybody to, uh, to agree with me. I would hope people would be civil, right? But with my wife, you better be civil, right? You can disagree with my wife. She's a big girl. We speak at marriage conferences. You, you better be respectful. My three kids, you don't touch my three kids. You know, God feels the exact same way. He loves you so much that Satan knows, I'm going to get at God by trying to get at his children. And by the way, you know what's interesting? It works. It actually works. Look at a fascinating passage out of Genesis. I find this verse remarkable. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So Satan is running amok on planet Earth. God sees this, and it causes his heart to be deeply troubled. 
You see, the ancient church tried to protect God from being like the Greek gods, like Zeus, who would have bad days and good days. So the ancient church kind of made the mistake, in my estimation, of saying God didn't have emotions. No, no, no. God has deep emotions, right? So when we're hurt, human beings, and especially God's children, it actually deeply impacts God. So that helps me in dealing with Satan to know Satan really wants to get at um, God, and he's using me as a means to do that. One of the ways that I stay away from pornography, to be honest with you, is my dad struggled with pornography to the day he died. Um, And sadly, we all became aware of his stash and all that kind of stuff. Well, the thought of turning my kids onto pornography would be heartbreaking. I'd rather die than do that. Right? So I'm not going to let anything affect my kids. So we need to have the inverse attitude. I'm not going to let Satan use me to cause God distress, to cause God pain. Second general observation. The war is for real. It has real consequences. So in the book of Daniel, um, Daniel in chapter 10 is wanting assistance from God. He has this vision he's trying to interpret. He spends 21 days by the Tigris River, uh, but he's getting no response from God, which is really odd. Then on the 22nd day, an angel shows up. We don't even know the angel's name, but the angel is described this way. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude, right? Think of young Tim Yohoff, okay? This is an amazing figure. There's people around Daniel who, who feel the presence of this angel and just recoil, but notice what the angel says, why he was so tardy in getting to Daniel, This is what he says. But the prince of the Persian kingdom, right, this demonic force that rested over Persia, resisted me for 21 days. So this unbelievable angel I just described could not get to Daniel, and Michael, the archangel, actually had to come to assist him so he could get to Daniel. Right? So Michael came to assist him. Listen, sometimes your prayers aren't answered because there's demonic resistance. Sometimes things we try to do for the gospel in Fullerton don't work out so well. It wasn't poor planning. It was because there was really powerful satanic uh, opposition, and we need to think that way. So when my wife and I go to a marriage conference, my goodness, we're going to present God's plan for marriage. You better believe Satan is wanting to throw a, a wrench into the ring, right? So no t- sometimes Noreen and I would be having like an argument when a conference is coming. Right? Because Satan's trying to influence us. So at a family life marriage conference, there's people who go around and pray for every chair in the auditorium. And pray against uh, satanic influences because they really do make a difference. The war is for real. Last, there's on-the-job training. I think 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this. By the way, the context of this verse is he's talking about a lack of forgiveness within the church in Corinth. He's linking that not to just not having good interpersonal skills or not having good intentions towards each other. He links it to demonic opposition. He says this, In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not aware, unaware of his schemes. In the Greek, that word schemes, we get the word strategy from that, particularly in a military sense. So as Satan observes us, he formulates his attacks, and as we study Satan, we formulate our defenses. 
So let's take a look at what some of these schemes, these tactics, the strategy would look like actually in play. So what's really cool about the book of Genesis, you get Satan who is um, described as a serpent and now he's going after the first human beings. This is on-the-job training for Satan, and it's on-the-job training for us to look at how Satan approaches Adam and Eve. So in the book of Genesis, we read this. Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Tactic number one with Satan, he loves to do this. He loves to misrepresent what God says. He loves to give you a half-truth. Did God say that? Did he say, in paradise, with all this wonderful trees that produce fruit, I'm saying to you, you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Didn't say that. The woman responds this way. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. No, God said, of course you can eat from fruit from trees. But there is one tree in the middle of the garden that represents rebellion. And I'm telling you, do not uh, eat from that tree. That will be a sign of rebellion against me. But of course, enjoy um, paradise. By the way, he does, Satan does, loves to do this with other things. For example, with money. Satan will say, money is a bad thing. You shouldn't have nice things, right? It's bad to have nice things. No, no, no. That is not what God said. Um, Through the scriptures, Paul says this. The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money. Money is a great thing. John Wesley was rich. He copyrighted his sermons. He used that money for great good. Corey Ten Boom said this. Hey, money belongs in your wallet, not in your heart. So absolutely, we can enjoy money. We can enjoy good things. Um, We also need to think about the poor, of course. But God is saying, no, no, no. I've blessed you. Enjoy my blessings. Right? But the love of money is where it turns into an idol. Here's my favorite. If I were to pick Satan's best distortion, this is when I speak evangelistically on college campuses, this is the one I get all the time. Satan has influenced people to say, hey, Jesus himself said, do not judge other people. So how dare you judge another person's lifestyle, another person's belief system? Jesus himself, from his own mouth, he said, do not judge other people. It is Satan's masterpiece of distortion. Because here's what the actual passage says. Listen to what... Uh, Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you use the Ten Commandments to judge another person, those Ten Commandments judge you. If you use the principle of it's better to think more about other people than it is to think about yourself, okay, that's a great principle, but that principle applies to you. So whatever rule you use to judge another person just knows that that is pointing towards you and you'll be judged by the same measure that you use to judge other people. I mean, if Jesus was against judging, he was the biggest hypocrite you could imagine. Right? He, no, he judged people all the time. He judged the Pharisees. He judged people in power. He judged the wealthy, right? So Jesus does judge people. He simply says, I'm under the same judgment. If I judge people, my standard applies to me. It applies to you as well. But Satan loves to distort what God is saying. Second tactic. 
Uh, Satan loves to lessen the severity of sin. Now, Satan knows sin has negative consequences, but he wants to lessen the severity of it. So this is what um, Genesis 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 3 to 4 say. But God said, um, but did God say, you must not eat uh, fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die, right? That is what God said. Serpent says this, you will most certainly will not die. You won't die. Oh, it might be bad, right? You're rebelling against God. But in the end, it's going to be okay. There may even be benefits to the rebellion, right? But you're not going to die. Don't worry about that. God's trying to scare you. Satan loves to do that. Right? So um, Satan says, oh, come on. If it's soft pornography, you're fine. I mean, I'm talking the swimsuit edition, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition. You're fine. Uh, Going to see that R-rated movie that has a bunch of sex scenes in it, you're fine. It's not like a pornographic movie. It's not like you're looking at porn. Come on, you're just looking at these uh, images of scantily dressed people. It's fine. What does Jesus say? I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, it is adultery. What? Satan loves to say, listen, everybody needs to uh, let off a little stress once in a while. It's okay to talk about other people, right? Just kind of get it off your chest and, and uh, you know, you're, you're talking negatively about a person, but it's okay. No, no, no. The Bible says that's slander. The book of James says the very fires of hell come through the tongue. James says if you want to know if a person's religious, can they control his or her tongue? That's a religious person that has the power of God in his or her life. God says every word will be held accountable. You'll be held accountable for every word you uttered before God. Isn't that amazing in our social media world? Right? Jesus has a different attitude towards sin. Here's his attitude. Um, oh, so, so I, I just got these images. They just made me laugh. So this is gossip, right? Gossip through social media. Uh, boy, we are taught at a young age to objectify women and to be interested, right? We're just taught at a young age. I remember playing junior high football. And uh, we're practicing, and girls would walk by, and the coaches would say, the coaches would say, boys, boys. And all of these heads were turned, and we'd watch a woman walk by. Right? When, I, when I went into marriage, everything I knew about sex came from two places. One, pornography, and second, the collective wisdom of the high school football team. Okay, that's where... So, but Satan says, listen, the sexual revolution, it's not natural to be married to a person the rest of your life. It's not natural to be in your 20s and show sexual restraint. That's crazy. You're at the height of your sexuality. Here's what Jesus says. I tell you, your right hand offends you, I want you to cut it off. If your eye offends you, I want you to pluck it out. By the way, I wasn't a Christian growing up in a Christian home. My grandparents were Lutheran. They were Christians. So they gave us a Bible every Christmas. Every Christmas, we got a present and we got a Bible. Now, my parents were like, hey, I know the Bible's kind of bizarre. Just say thank you for it. It's grandpa and grandma. You don't have to read it, right? Just, you know. So one day, I picked it up to read it. So I open it, I open to this passage. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. I was like, what? What? I closed the Bible, didn't pick it up for years. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, Jesus, we call that hyperbole, right? Listen, if you cut off your, Jesus isn't stupid, right? If you cut off your right hand, you still have your left hand. 
If you pluck out your eye, you still have another eye. You pluck out both eyes, you can still sin with your imagination. Jesus is saying this. I want you to be radical when it comes to sin. I want you to be radical when it comes to it. Don't play with it. Paul would say to his young protege, um, Timothy, I want you to flee immorality. I don't want you to mess with it. I want you to flee it. So let me just say this. Let me be brutally honest. If you have a computer, a smartphone, anything that you can get the internet, and you don't have a filter on that, you don't have accountability on that, Satan has already won most of the victory. He's already won it. And this isn't just for our kids, right? If you have a phone that has access 24-7 to the internet and there's no accountability whatsoever, there's no filter whatsoever, then I'm just telling you right now, Satan's already won half the victory. And that other shoe is going to drop. So, knowing my background, I have covenant eyes on my computer. Everywhere I go on my computer, a friend of mine, John Lundy at Biola, gets a printout of where I go every week on my computer. By the way, one week I was at a family life marriage conference, I was speaking, and Noreen took my laptop computer, and she was helping the boys with the project, and accidentally, somehow, got into a porn site. And she was like, oh my gosh, and she just turned off the computer. She calls me, she knows about Covenant Eyes. She said, listen, you've got to call John, call John. And it's like, you know what, I decided not to. Let's see how this thing works, right? So I get a phone call, and John's like, hey, bro, how would you like to uh, have breakfast? And I'm like, love it. I would love it, John. Let me just tell you, Noreen stumbled on it. He goes, and he was like, I thought we lost me off. I thought we lost me off. So listen, um, on my TV, we have parental controls, right? I don't have the code. I, I don't want that kind of temptation. I, I don't want it. So I remember one time there was something one of my kids wanted to watch. It was totally fine, but it was blocked for whatever reason. And my son says to me, Dad, punch in your parental code. I said, I don't have it. He goes, you're a parent. Why do you not have the parental code? I said, I don't want that kind of temptation. Well, call mom, get it. I think that would ruin the purpose of it. So listen, we need to have boundaries. And Satan loves to minimize the effects of sin. Now, let me just be very clear. That sin doesn't cause God to love you any less. But it does cause havoc in your family. It does cause havoc in your soul. And it inhibits the ability for you to experience God's love. Oh, here's one he loves to do. He loves to divide and conquer. Look at this fascinating passage from Genesis. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, we can't push this too far, but many theologians believe Adam was within proximity of Eve when she's being tempted. He just didn't intervene. He could have been right there, but he didn't intervene. He didn't step in. He was passive. Satan had divided and conquered. And that's exactly what he wants to do in this church. He wants to divide us. Now, we all can be present, right? But that doesn't mean we're unified. So Satan loves to get us thinking different things. He loves to have us... Um, be angry with each other and not deal with it before the sun goes down, not deal with that anger. So don't be surprised if Satan is just trying to divide and conquer us, and we need to be aware tensions within the church happen because we're human beings and the inevitability of conflict, but also because Satan loves to stir the pot when it comes to disagreements among Christians. Uh, When possible, 
Satan, he avoids direct attacks. Imagine if Satan were to walk up to Eve and said, Eve, I want you to rebel against God. Eve would have said, no, nope, not going to do it. It's too direct. Uh, When C.S. Lewis wrote about this temptation in his um, um, space trilogy, it takes months, perhaps even a year, for Satan to tempt Adam and Eve. He does it very slowly. Right? So listen to what the passage says. We actually read this once, but let's look at it in detail. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The, Satan, uh, the serpent represents Satan. The word crafty in Hebrew means subtle, is what it means. So you know that I'm trying to get my black belt in kung fu. Well, I became a Christian through karate in high school in Mudaquan karate, and I got to the point in Mudaquan where you actually fought black belts full contact karate. I'll never forget the first day. The first, I mean, it's just an honor to be able to do that. So I'm standing across from these black belts, and the instructor says, begin, and I'm thinking something dramatic. I'm thinking the guy's going to be, you know, that kind of a thing. So I'm like this, you know, and all this black belt does, I'll never forget it, is he just kicks my leg. He just goes, pop. And I was like, what, what was that? That was nothing. So we're, we, you know, we're doing it, and then he goes, pop, hits me again. I go, it's like being nibbled to death by a duck, right? This is, what, what is this? Then he does it again, right behind my knee. It's stung a little bit, but I'm totally fine. Then he did something I'll never forget. He fakes a kick. He fakes it, he just goes, and I look straight down, and he hits me with a left hook. A left hook is not even karate, okay? I hit the deck. Afterwards, he grabbed me and he said, oh, I love this day. I love fighting the third degree green belts. Why? You always fall for it. Three kicks, a fake, and then comes the left hook. So men and women, I'd encourage you to think this way about your family. What are the three kicks? The left hook is coming, but what are the three kicks to soften you up? It might be overcommitment. By the way, Satan loves overcommitment. It can be to church, it can be to work, it can be to fantasy football. He doesn't care. Overcommitment is overcommitment. Uh, it could be that you don't forgive other people. Right now, you can think of two or three people that, that you just have a slow burn towards these people, but you've not resolved it. Satan loves it. Those are his kicks. You might be job-centered, you might be family-centered. He doesn't care. But you may spend all your time and energy at work and you view coming home as a finish line. When you cross that finish line, you just, you're off, you're done. Or it can be family-centered. By the way, if I had to pick for America right now, I think we're family-centered too much. I think we're having a family affair. I think what has hurt marriages today is that the kids know this whole marriage is about me. Right? Travel basketball teams, travel ba- ballet, taekwondo, it doesn't matter. But we're not even in the same... Uh, church is what we do when we're not in the finals of a basketball tournament. Right? The, Satan loves to, to have us be overcommitted to our kids. By the way, I deal with that excess as a college professor. These kids think the universe revolves around them and then they come into my classroom. And I'm like, listen, it doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around me, okay? (laughs) Not you. And we do. Best thing you can do for your kids, psychologists tell us this. Best thing you can do for your kids is to say to them, you're not the center of this family. You're not. Mom and dad's relationship is more important than your, us, our relationship with you. Psychologists show if the primary relationship is stable and healthy, then the kids get derivative care and nurturing. Reverse that, and the kids get inappropriate sense of self. 
Best thing you can do for your kids, if you're married and have kids, go on a date without them. Best thing you can do. I remember, I remember going on a date where my kids was like, where are you going? On a date. What's that? It's not you. <laughs> that is a date. So I, I would have this conversation as a couple. If you're roommates, college roommates, sit down and say, what are the, what are the three kicks? Well, how is Satan softening us right now and the left hook is absolutely coming? I love what uh, one theologian says. Satan plants subtle stimuli. He often influences an attitude. He wins a minor victory, always in preparation for the big ball. So let me close with two thoughts. One, very interesting to see what the first reaction is of Adam and Eve after they're in rebellion. After they sin, there's a beautiful passage in uh, Genesis 3.8 where God is walking in the cool of the evening. Uh, we get a sense that that was a regular occurrence, that he often fellowshiped with Adam and Eve, right? It's metaphorical, of course, but there was a deep sense of fellowship. Well, God is taking his annual stroll through paradise and can't find Adam and Eve. Can't find them. They're hiding from God for the very first time. And God literally says, hey, where are you guys? They are shameful to be in the presence of God. They're ashamed. Men and women, let me just say this. Shame is of Satan, not God. By the way, if you think it's too late, if you think you've messed up in your Christian faith and you can't come back to God, uh, that's from Satan, not God. Jesus handled that one. If Jesus ever closed the door on an issue, he closed the door on this issue. He gives us his most famous parable, the prodigal son. He paints a worst-case scenario of what a person can do against a father right? I wish you were dead. Give me your inheritance. He goes off and squanders the inheritance in ways that are deeply shameful to the father and the family. And then finally he comes back out of purely pragmatic means. The servants eat better than I do. And what is God's response, the father figure? When the son is coming, what does the father do? Sit there and go, unbelievable. Unbelievable that you would come back. You think I'm going to hire you as a servant? I'm not even going to hire you as a servant. Get out of here. Get out of here. You know what happens? It's beautiful. God runs towards the prodigal. Hikes up his skirt, which we know in Near Eastern times, you never would have done that. It would have been very unpatriarchal to do that. And he runs. So men and women, if you're sitting there thinking, it's, if the words, it's too late, are entering your vocabulary, it's too late to reconcile with that person. It's too late to come back to God. It's too late to come back to church. I can't ask God for forgiveness one more time for this sin. It's embarrassing. I just can't do it. If that's the vocabulary that's coming into your mental thought process, that is clearly of Satan, not God. God is saying it is never too late to come back, and I never left. It is never too late to come back to me. And second, let me say this. The problem of evil is a problem, and Satan is a reality, and we have to prepare for him. But men and women, it's a short-term problem. God has said, and it is infinite power and love, I'm going to draw an end to this. There is a wonderful passage in Revelation, right, chapter 21, where God welcomes humanity, all the people that are believers, welcomes them, and he wipes away every tear from their eyes. And he says, evil is done. The first things have come, the second things have passed away. So men and women, it's, it, 
the world is a hard place. It is hard to be a Christian. Uh, That's why the Bible talks about long-suffering so much. One of the reasons it's hard to be a Christian is that we don't don't put enough work into it. Uh, The Bible says, um, discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. Right? That word discipline, we get the word gymnasium from that word. Right? Work at this. And some of us, to be honest, once a week won't cut it. Right? Just coming once a week and singing some worship songs and listening to preaching and walking out those doors isn't enough. My Kung Fu instructor says that all the time. You're never going to get there if you're coming one time a week. Now, that's better than nothing, but you're never going to get there. So some of us, we need to make God more a priority. But even if you don't know that God loves you, Some of us just need to embrace the fact that God loves us, and in that love, we need to rededicate ourselves. So let me pray for us. I'm going to pray this today. Two things. One, that you'll have an honest conversation about the three kicks. What are they? What's the left hook that might be coming? We haven't talked about this as a family. We've not talked about this as roommates. We've not talked about this as a church. We need to talk about it. Second, I'm going to give you, I want to pray for me, pray for you, that we would have a sense, not only of God's love, but when we watch the news today, we wouldn't just see people acting badly, we would see and recognize the presence of Satan in the world today. And maybe for the first time, as we pray, we pray against demonic powers. We pray against an adversary that is a roaring lion that's seeking to devour each one of us. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you, we think of our security, we think of your love for us. We're humbled by that. Father, our hearts ache for this world. We read what's happening in Israel right now. We, we feel guilty for not thinking even more about the homeless in Fullerton. We feel guilty for not thinking more about the Syrian refugee crisis. Father, the world's a hard place. We often mistakenly think if we can just get the politics right, if we could just get the giving of and dispersing of money right, we could fix the world. But Father, we need spiritual solutions. We're in a war right now. Father, I pray for this church. We're in a transition period, and no doubt Satan is probing our defenses to take advantage of a beloved pastor leaving of uh, a transition period. Father, we pray for our leadership. We pray for David Fletcher. We pray for our elders. We pray for uh, those who are praying for this church and giving direction, that you'd protect them. Father, today we thank you for your love. Today we look at the world and we understand that this is a battlefield. And help us to be participants. Help us to fight back. We do pray in Jesus' name and his strength. Amen.